I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page featuring an interview with Larry Burns. this week's episode. Larry's reputation precedes him. If you're not familiar, just a pioneer in the electrification, hydrogen, automated driving space. have done some incredible work here throughout the years and back to the... 90s and 2000s and still is as involved and sharp as ever on the on these topics awesome getting his thoughts i've mentioned it several times in the interview here um his book autonomy i am a huge fan highly recommend it if you're interested in these topics um yeah i'll, I'll leave in the intro from when the episode originally aired so you'll hear that here in a minute um so i'll, I'll keep this this short but yeah second most popular episode of the year for great reason larry's uh like i said a true legend a pioneer in this space so yeah enjoy thanks Today's guest is Larry Burns. So who is Larry? It's almost hard to oversell him in this space. So, so from 1998 to 2000, 2009, Larry was Corporate Vice President of Research and Development and Planning slash Strategic Planning, reporting directly to the CEO and President of General Motors. And if you think back to that time period, GM was really on the cutting edge leading the industry in a couple of spaces, and in particular, their autonomy platform that was under Larry's leadership, actually, in conjunction with a past podcast guest, Chris, Chris Baroni Birds, way back, I think, episode three or four. Um, but this autonomy platform, early 2000s, it's a electrified skateboard platform fueled as the, the power conversion device on board being a hydrogen fuel cell. If you think about where the industry's come, what, what, what that actually was like back then, crazy to think how, how far ahead they were and the, the things that they were doing under Larry's leadership as as a as an organization it wasn't just that i mean he was also what larry calls automobility he's also one one of the first if not the first to think about hey let's not just make a better car let's rethink the way that people are getting around let's rethink the transportation the mobility ecosystem which ultimately i mean that's 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 kind of the basis of this podcast right so that's it's common practice now not so much 20 years ago so other things that are interesting uh, in the autonomous vehicle space. So Larry 
under his leadership again, GM sponsored the Carnegie Mellon team that ended up winning the DARPA, the second DARPA Grand Challenge, which really kicked off the push into this self-driving space. He also then was consultant for Waymo, or previously Google self-driving cars from 2010 until just a few months ago. And really, he's, he's someone who's talks the talk, but more, more than anything is walk the walk in this industry as being on the cutting edge, really rethinking what it means, what mobility means, what the future of mobility means. So an, an honor to have, have Larry uh, on, on the show here and hopefully you get a lot out of this. I guess some background and how, how I got in touch with Larry. So I, the last few months, and you may see this by the types of guests I've had on the podcast, I've been really focused on getting up to speed trying to understand what what is the state of the art what's what's the industry like how how does this industry work for automated driving and advice i was given by a senior leader in the industry was read two things one sae j3016 standard understand what we're talking about in the terms and all that type of stuff second read larry burns's book autonomy the quest to build the driverless car and how it will reshape our world did both got a ton of value out of the sae standards i recommend that if you haven't read that and you're listening here and also really was blown away by by the book autonomy and i i think we touch on this maybe in the the episode a bit here and i might on the, the recap at the end as well but just super interesting hearing the background of how this um industry has started the story of how it's evolved over time and then yeah through, through that also larry's larry's role in it which which i think comes through in this conversation is, is super interesting so I think that's that's good for now. I I hope you enjoy this conversation with Larry Burns. Today I'm joined by Larry Burns. Larry, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure, Brandon. Yeah, this uh, it should be a fun one. I think this is a discussion I'm I'm really looking forward to. And uh, so so the future mobility podcast here, right? So the what I the unoriginal name I've come up with. We talk about the future of mobility and the way I I think about it. It's making transportation safer more sustainable more effective and more accessible essentially and i think it's exciting that uh you're, you're really one of the pioneers in this in this field so i'm, I'm, I'm excited to get your thoughts on some of these things uh i i, I don't want to necessarily i'll have some some background in in the intro but would you mind just kind of at, at a high level introducing to some some of the work that you've done in this space and uh where, where you're coming from yeah no i i'd be happy to do that thanks a lot for inviting me to participate um, we've entered an extremely exciting uh, period for the future of how people and goods move around, how we interact socially and economically. Um, and that's that's something that's happened overnight. That has really been the result of a lot of innovation. Um, sometimes you get trapped into looking at these inventions one by one in a silo, but it's really how I think a, a few important dots have finally come together. Obviously, the electric vehicle. Um, autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles. I like to use the term automobility to describe that because we had the age of automobiles that, that lasted from the late 1800s when Carl Benz invented the first uh, combustion vehicle all the way up until right now where we're beginning to transition to an all-new uh, DNA. I think the real exciting story about automobility is the kind of experiences people are going to have in the future. This is a, a completely different approach to, to the product uh, design DNA and to how people are going to use these uh, machines as part of their life. So we're seeing business model transformations, we're seeing propulsion system transformation, we're seeing 
the uh, control of the vehicle and the role that the person plays in the vehicle, all of that changing and, and absolutely major economic changes in how uh, the logistics of the world works. I, I got into this first and foremost because I was an engineer. I went to General Motors Institute. Um, I'm dating myself, but I was there from 1969 to 1973. I went on to University of Michigan to study public policy and then off to University of California, Berkeley, where I received my doctoral degree in transportation engineering. My real interest, Brandon, was, you know, not just um, uh, cars, but really why is transportation such an important part of people's lives? Why are people buying a car and, and uh, making it uh, so important? Because for any one trip, you can always figure out maybe a more efficient way to make a trip. But it was all of those trips that you get to make, the freedom to go where you want to, when you want to, that I was captivated by. I did my dissertation on that concept of accessibility. And then I had a great career at GM, um, ended up uh, leading R&D, named head of R&D in 1998. And when I had that um, great news from Rick Wagner that he was going to promote me into this, this important job, um, we had a lunch, just Rick and I. And Rick and I got talking about if we were going to invent the automobile today, that would have been in 1998, rather than 100 years earlier, what would we do different given what we knew about technology and given what we knew about the issues associated with automobiles? And uh, Rick said, that's, that's a really big question. And I said, it sure is. And he said, that's what I want you to focus on. You're the only person, uh, he had 12 direct reports. I was one of his direct reports. You're the only person on my staff that I really think um, has the time to really think this through. And it was liberating, Brandon. It was, you know, I felt we needed a whole new DNA for the automobile. We needed to move beyond combustion and, and get to electric propulsion. We needed to eliminate crashes and fatalities. So that probably meant getting dry, the driver out of the car. We needed to get off of this notion that you needed to have three parking spots for every car that existed in the world. We needed to make access more equitable for people who couldn't drive a car, couldn't afford a car, were inclined not to own one. They needed to have the same ability to get to jobs, to get to services, to get to health care that others needed. And obviously we needed to deal with these environmental issues. So Rick liber liberated me to think about that. The first big idea was the autonomy concept car that we showcased at the um, 2002 North American International Auto Show in, in Detroit at Cobo Hall. It was a big hit. It was really the forerunner to all these skateboard platforms that you see out there today. And um, then we um, pivoted from that to proving it was possible to do a platform of that type. This was, we made a handful of drivable variants of that idea and then we got into this whole question of autonomous vehicles. DARPA in 2000, early 2000s, middle 2000s, was having these challenges on cars that could drive themselves. And um, uh, in my role as head of R&D, I decided GM would sponsor a competitor in the DARPA Urban Challenge. We sponsored Carnegie Mellon University, and we won that race. It was great. We, we were part of the winning of $2 million. I said GM needed the money because we were running out of cash. We ended up going bankrupt. I ended up leaving GM, but Google decided to create Google self-driving cars and they were looking for an experienced auto executive that could help guide them. And I, I had about 20 to 25% of my time available to allocate and became a consultant to Google self-driving cars, which became Waymo. 
And I did that for over 10 years. I wrapped that up last May. So that was a great, a great, a great experience working with this team of extraordinary engineers and technologists to try to take this from a, a great idea in the DARPA Urban Challenge to proof of concept and ultimately very, very early stage commercialization. So that's how I got into it. You know, it just is unacceptable to have 1.3 million people a year dying on the world roadways. You don't want to be in a business where you're contributing to climate change today. It's just not a good business to be in. You got to get the car out of the energy and environmental debate uh, for good business reasons. And I think what all of us are discovering now is that, hey, the skateboard platform give, is a much more uh, capital efficient and engineering efficient way to develop a portfolio of product that you bring to market. Far fewer parts, far fewer moving parts, which is extremely important for any engineer who, who, who understands the significance of, of, of mechanisms. And I think that's what's happening now as the auto industry is embracing this future because it's just proving going to prove to be a better way to run the industry. So very long story, but that, that's how I got into it. Started as an engineer with General Motors, captivated by some interesting ideas and things just come along and you take advantage of them and they come along and lo and behold, you end up the two of us talking. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for that background. It's it's certainly a, a remarkable career thus far, and uh, I mean, if I can add to that as well. So, so I mean, I've, I'm over ninety episodes in on this podcast, and I've been talking about you know the electrification, automated driving, connectivity, hydrogen uses, and can't just brush by the point. I mean, with the autonomy platform, with hydrogen and skateboard, and then when you the startup challenge, like. That's when all this stuff started. Like, right, you, you were, yeah. we're, we're, we're now here. We're now here in 2022, and you know it's it's a huge industry. There's a bunch of people working on these problems, but it, I can't imagine you felt like you had a bunch of company back then when you, when you were first no, pursuing no, these things. It's, it's, you know, for for any of the innovators listening in, it, it sometimes can feel pretty lonely. There were, and I mentioned in my book, um, Autonomy, uh, some of those stories. There were some moments, I, one, one in particular, where GM clearly was going bankrupt. We had the New York Auto Show coming up. We didn't have anything to really show. So we took this two-seat concept off of the um, Segway platform and with a kind of crude uh, roll cage. It was drivable on, on the streets of New York, but we showed it to the journalists and everybody. They didn't get it at all. They absolutely didn't get it. But by 2010, that thing became refined enough to be the star of the World's Fair, the Shanghai World's Fair. So sometimes you just you really need to have a lot of per perseverance to be an innovator, to get into startups and believe in your ideas. I guess the advice I would have on that is, you really need to dial in on value. If, if you really believe your innovation creates real value, tr truly real value, hang with it because you'll find a way, you'll find a way to harvest that value. And in this case with automobility, electric connected vehicles, you know, we're talking about eliminating crashes and saving the lives of people, getting off of oil, radically reducing the per mile cost of, of moving around and interacting, making it uh, more uh, socially acceptable to or uh, uh, available to a much wider group of people, freeing up land from parking. There's so much value creation here. Maybe the best value creation is to create experiences for people when they're riding around that are second to none. I think the design challenge out there is the person always feels better getting out of a vehicle than when they got in. Think mm -hmm. about that. A simple way to state it, but 
the goal of the future designers for mobility vehicles should be every time a person exits a vehicle, they feel better than when they got in. Maybe they took a nap. Maybe they social network with their friends or family. Maybe they got some work done. You define what made you feel better. But today, I don't think that's the case for most people who've driven home in, in traffic and are worried about getting run over by you know, a, a, a vehicle on the freeway going 95 miles an hour or something like that. So I, I think... I think there's, there's 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 really great opportunity here. So back in when Rick asked me that question, not just external to GM, but inside of GM, there was a whole lot of skepticism about spending any money at all on anything other than evolving what we knew how to do, which was combustion engines on body on frame, body frame intergrowth, stamped metal vehicles branded around their driving experience and the brand cues of a portfolio of brands like Chevy. And, and Buick and GMC and Cadillac and others. So it, 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 it's been a journey, but I've never lost faith in that. I, I've always felt that uh, it, it, there were all kinds of negatives associated with the auto industry at that time. Just run through them a second from a consumer standpoint. How many people like to stop to buy gas? Oh boy, my tank's on an eighth. Eighth full, I get to stop, get out of the car, get grab that grimy pump handle, stick it in my tank and get some gas on my shoes. How many people like to look for parking? How many people really like to spend their time tethered to the steering wheel, especially when they're driving on a freeway and they know it's, it's hard to, to continue to concentrate on that? Or how many people actually love to go out shopping for cars or shopping for insurance or financing? Brandon, we've created so many negative or at best ambivalent experiences around owning and operating a car. And the strategist would, would say that's an industry ripe for disruption. And it absolutely was ripe for disruption in 1998 and 2002 with the autonomy concept, where 20 years later, it's, it's happening. And I wish it could have happened sooner because we've had a lot of people continue to die on the roadways. We've put a lot of carbon into the atmosphere but it's going to happen because the value truly is there. And yes. that's how and the economies, economics tell me that companies are going to harvest that value and consumers are going to love it. And one of the things that stand up, so you mentioned your book, Autonomy, which I, I'll, I'll link to here. I, re, I highly recommend anyone, if you, if you haven't read it to, and you're listening to this, uh, definitely check it out. It's, what, it's my favorite book I've read in, in, about the, this industry for sure. Um, and, and so, but one, one thing that comes through in that book, it comes through kind of as you're speaking now, and it's a sense of optimism that, that I'm hearing, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a focus on, yeah, we're talking about the negatives, we're talking about what's wrong, but it's not, it's not a negative, hey, we need to fix this or else, but it's look at all this opportunity we have ahead of us. Look at this exciting engineering challenge that we have, this innovator challenge that we have. And that's, that's such a, I don't know, it's so much more power. Like, it hits me at a, at a different space than like the super rational, yeah, we're yeah. running away from... <laughs> Carbon. There's a couple of sources for that optimism. One is the sort of the definition of a pessimist. A pessimist sees the glass um, half empty. Uh, an optimist sees it half full. An engineer sees the glass twice as big as it needs to be. <laughs> so I, I think engineers, I really believe in engineers, Brandon. My optimism is grounded in engineers because engineers make what's possible real. A lot of people don't understand what an exciting profession it is to be an engineer because you get to make what's possible real. That's part of my optimism. But I had a life experience. I talk about it in the book. But in the middle 90s, I went deaf. 
I woke up one night in the middle of the night and I had lost my hearing and I lived a full year with no hearing at all. GM was marvelous. They supported me in every way possible for me to be able to do, do my job. I had an important job back then, um, a senior position in one of GM's divisions. And they just really, really lived this whole diversity argument of helping everybody realize their full potential. And then I got this technology called the cochlear implant. This little skinny wire they put into the cochlea into your ear and the wire touches your auditory nerve and there's 22 electrodes on it. Brandon, I can tell you right now, talking to you in my one ear, it's still the same wire that they put in, you know, 20 some years ago, 25 years ago. And those electrodes are still firing. Think of the materials engineering and the sophistication of what was being done back then. So I, I hear today because of technologists, because of people like a guy named Grant Clark, who was a, a, an inventor in Australia in the 1970s, who believed he could stimulate someone's auditory nerve with electricity and help them detect sound. And nobody believed Graham. He stuck with it. And here I am, an embodiment of what he created. So I think there's every reason to be optimistic. And I get frustrated because we live in a world with a lot of media that focuses on the negative. And we have so much to be thankful for, and including this technology that's coming. It's going to really, really address a lot of major social and environmental and economic issues. And more importantly, I think it's going to enrich a lot of people's lives beyond what they ever imagined. Yeah, a great, great story. And I'd be curious now to get your thoughts on what, what's what's the current status of automobility for you. So I, I think the electrification side, we I think, is, is decently well covered and that I mean, yeah, there's there's some misconceptions, but we're, we're close um, on the, the yeah. people listening, kind of having a decent feel there. Automation connectivity side, I think there's so much information in, in different directions that it's it's hard to really make out what, what, what actually is the, the case. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, great question. I, I like to think about the future in terms of tipping points. You know, the economists like to do econometric forecasts and they, they'll try to answer the question, what's the market share of electric vehicles going to be in 2035? I always joke, you can you can put all the economists in the world end to end and they still won't reach a conclusion. So I don't believe in those forecasts at all. I, but I do think you can ask the question, what has to be true for a new technology to tip in the marketplace? That's that magic moment when the value exceeds the price, so people want it, and the price exceeds the cost, so companies want to supply it. I think we've hit that tipping point for electric vehicles. I think I think there's no turning back on that. We've hit a tipping point on electric vehicles and the amount of capital flowing into new uh, entries of EVs over the next three to five years is awesome. So we're past that. Connected vehicles, we're past that tipping point. There are telematics companies who have proven over and over again, having historical and real-time data on what's going on on our roadways with vehicles has great value, whether it's an insurance company with usage-based insurance or a truck fleet uh, managing their maintenance program better. That's past the tipping point. Autonomous vehicles are still a few years away. Um, you know, I wrote this paper when I was leading a program at Columbia University called the Program for Sustainable Mobility. The paper came out in 2013. And what I was doing then with my, my two co-authors was to try to estimate what would be the impact of connected electric autonomous two-person vehicles replacing all of the cars, let's say, in a city like Ann Arbor. We just wanted to try to get a sense of 
you know, how much lower the cost per mile might be and how many of these vehicles would you need? And the paper turned out to be very, very interesting. It sort of created an impression for some people that I was advocating the whole world would pivot to robotaxis. And some companies remain committed to the robotaxi autonomous driving model, which there'd be no steering wheel, no brake pedals. The, the car would be Uber without a driver and that was the business. And in fact, over time, and even in my book, I begin to hint at it, I, I realized that the, the more immediate value proposition for autonomous was goods movement. There's no ambiguity about the labor cost per mile on an over-the-road truck. It's on the order of 80 cents. So if you can do 500-mile stretch of, of interstate travel without a driver in that tractor-trailer rig, you're going you're to say $400. And that, 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 you know, that's the 80 cents times the 500 miles, basically. And, and so that business case is crystal clear. And it turns out when you look at the interstate system, not all miles of the interstate are the same in terms of risk. A, a flat, straight, um, nice weather stretch across Nebraska with no traffic is a lot easier to do than a mountainous, curvy, snowy stretch in the mountains in Colorado. So you, you don't have to solve all of the freeway system in order to begin to harvest value from some of the freeway systems. So this became clear to me. I, I think we're very, very close with uh, over-the-road truck autonomous applications. In fact, some are happening today, very uh, unique applications. Um, Gaddick does from Walmart, for example, a movement from a Walmart Mm -hmm. warehouse to a Walmart store on a geofenced route. I think they might be doing it at night. So those use cases can be picked off. So I'm very encouraged about that for goods movement. Also last mile applications. Some of the companies like Noro and, and Starship and others are really getting some interesting uh, plays on, on last mile delivery. On the people movement side, I think what really needs to be understood is not just full autonomy, but uh, advanced driver assistance systems and where they're headed. This is things like Super Cruise that, that GM has. And imagine if you had a vehicle that had cutting edge ADAS, um, Super Cruise, for example, and full autonomous capability. So you still have a steering wheel and brake pedal when the humans needed, but there are going to be stretches up the road based on telematics data that you know you can handle fully autonomously and safely. And, and, and why not do it that way? Have this, what I might call two mode driving system in the same vehicle. Maybe that's what GM's talking about when they talk about ultra cruise. Mary Barra said at the Consumer Electronics Show that ultra cruise is capable of handling 95% handling of driving situations. Probably the remaining 5% are where the crashes are happening and are the real tough ones. So you've got, you can't be happy with 95%. But I think we're going to find a way to harvest value from the autonomous technology uh, on a use case by use case basis. And maybe this pure vehicle of no steering wheel, no brake pedals, I think it's going to find its, its place in the world. But I think an ADAS has already found its place in the world. I think you're going to see these auto companies. You know, Volkswagen is hinting at that with, um, with Bosch, I think. I think Volvo's had some news on that. Geely's had some news on that. And obviously GM with Ultra Cruise. So, so um, uh, am I optimistic about autonomous? Yes. Has it taken longer than I would have hoped? 
Yes. Some people say it was overhyped. I think a lot of people weighed in with predictions without really being on the cutting edge of what's going to be required. And I think even the best of the developers would admit that as we got closer and closer to having handled all the situations, it's getting harder and harder. It's like getting in the red zone in football. It's a lot harder to score a touchdown from the 10-yard line than it is maybe from the, you know, those last 10 yards are really, really hard to do. So, so we're at that point. Um, but there's going to be true value creation. And I can't overemphasize the, the synergy between the electric vehicle and the autonomous vehicle in terms of the electrical architecture, the um, controls architecture, the software architecture, the full stack computing platforms that will be coming into the vehicles. You take the skateboard, and then you take the full stack compute, and then you begin to ask what, what are the differentiators what are the differentiators in the auto industry uh, when, when most everybody's going to be coming off of a skateboard with a full stack computer? It's going to be a lot of software. It's going to be a lot of focus on experience, but the brand I don't think will be the ultimate driving machine. It could be the ultimate riding machine uh, yeah. as we go forward. I, I'd be curious to dive a little deeper. So, so that's, that's an interesting topic that maybe we'll come back to that last one, but this, uh, this two mode um, driving. So, First of all, just to make sure we're clear on, on definitions and then hopefully people will understand this, but when we're talking about autonomous, assisted, non-assisted driving, right? That those are specific things, right? Where automated slash self-driving means you are not expected as a driver to have any attention, right? You're being driven exactly. by the vehicle. Exactly right. I think there's two kinds of driving. You know, I, I'm very appreciative of SAE and the regulators getting out there with the level one, two, three, four, or five definitions. We needed something at that point in time. So no one should ever be apologetic about having introduced that. But consumers aren't going to understand that. And a lot of the regulators and investors in this space don't understand it. So I got thinking, what, what are we really talking about? I think there's two kinds of driving out there. There's driving where a human has to be involved. And there's driving where a human doesn't have to be involved at all. No, not in the loop what, whatsoever. I call the latter autonomous, and I call the former human. Now, super cruise is human driving. You have to be in the driver's seat. You have to be paying attention sufficiently based on the monitoring systems in order for super cruise to be engaged. And then fully autonomous, you, you could be asleep. You could be in the passenger seat. You could be reading. You could be eating. You could be texting, working on your laptop. You're not in the loop at all. So you've got human and you've got autonomous. And let's say today we go to this example of Nebraska with a nice straight stretch of the freeway. You've got history on that stretch of the freeway. There's never been a crash on this stretch of the freeway under these conditions up the road. And furthermore, my development process for my autonomous system says I can handle straight, I can handle flat, I can handle daylight let Larry go to sleep for the next hour. But pretty soon we're going to get into the foothills of the Rockies here, and I'm going to need him to pay attention, and I know what I need him for. It's not everything. I need him for certain curves, certain elevations, not being able to see over certain hills. And that's a different situation, awareness, Brandon, than Larry, wake up. You've got three seconds to figure out how to avoid this truck coming at you head on. So we got trapped into the situation awareness debate, I think early on in the development of the technology, that's a human who fell asleep in the driver's seat could never wake up in time to handle an emergency. I'm saying use 
the telematics data and very, very importantly, extremely exciting breakthroughs in sensor technology to see much farther up the road, much clearer up the road or much sooner up the road than we can see today and put all that together so that we can anticipate the road ahead and know when we truly can operate. I'm talking about in a zero crash context for stretches of the road. And I think over time, Brandon, the amount of time you can spend in full autonomous will increase and the amount of time I'm needed will decline. That means we don't have to solve all the remaining problems in order to commercialize and realize value from some of this. I mentioned these sensors. This is a, a bit of an advertisement, but I'm an executive advisor to a company called Neuropropulsion Systems, NPS. And we just released a paper. We just had a press release on it um, two days ago about the fact that zero deaths, which is the objective now defined by the Secretary of Transportation and the, the new National Roadway Safety Strategy, Zero deaths is where we want to go to. That's different than just becoming safer. Zero deaths means seeing farther, seeing faster, and seeing clearer. And we set out and, and, and assess how well do you need to see to have zero deaths. So this gets into breaking distances and how fast you can see, how fast you can perceive, all of this stuff. So we do all these calculations based on information theory and physics, and we reach some pretty interesting conclusions. First of all, you need to see about a hundred, be able to process about a hundred terabits per second of information to see in the worst case conditions to be able to have the safety margin for stopping vehicles in cities or vehicles on roads. Secondly, a human can only do about 10 megabits. So humans about one millionth of what it needs to be in order to, to see. And cameras can't get this job done either. It really requires the fusion of multi-band radar with solid state LIDAR with system on a chip technology and some very sophisticated math called the atomic norm. The bottom line though, is we can do it. We can see well enough to not have crashes with yep. these technologies. So I, the two mode then is this combination of better sensing, better maps, anticipating the road ahead with telematics, historical and real-time data, and then knowing what you can do and knowing what you can't do and making sure the driver's in the driver's seat when you're into situations where you need their help. I think that's how this gets done. Why is that so important? It's because 80 to 85% of all the miles traveled on roads in the United States are in personal cars. That's the grand prize of auto autonomous driving. It's the personal car. And that's what General Motors has had as a business model. Ford has had as a business model. All the OEMs have had it as a business model. And that's what I want. Think about Economics 101, Brandon. If today the out-of-pocket and time cost of owning and operating a car is a buck fifty, and I think in this paper I did at Columbia, I think we're going to be able to get that into a 20 cent per mile world. What should that mean about having your own? If 85% of the people have their own car today at a buck fifty, don't we think more people will have their own car if the cost goes down? Yeah. So I think this future is going to be about all of us having our own personal autonomous electric connected valet that can move us around where we want to move around, that can go run errands for us when we don't even want to take the trip. And we're going to see that all play out on the world in terms of how goods and people move around and interact. And I think this two mode is, is, is a critically important
um, pathway forward uh, to, to get to that end end result. Is that uh, making is that making sense? I'll just sort of is, is it getting clearer to you? It, it is, and I think there's there's two 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 different places I'd want to go. So so one is just kind of dri- driving home the fact that this is different than what's being so like Tesla's full self driving, for example, whatever. It's an assisted driving system. It's not an automated driving system, which which is what we're talking about right now. And the key difference is, I don't know, in my mind, I think of these assisted systems, the way they're being deployed right now as convenience features, less than safety features. Because if you're if you're relying on the driver to have situational awareness and drop and jump in in the worst conditions, like you said, a truck's coming at you three seconds from now, kind of by definition, that can't be much safer than what the what the, the driver is doing right now. On the other side, if this future that you're talking about, which is, no, we can make predictions and figure out when is this vehicle good at driving itself? Let's rely on it when it's very good at driving itself. When it's not, let's tell the driver, hey, we need you, be, be engaged. And then you can, you can, have, these, you can have automatic um, emergency braking. You can have other support systems for this driver, Absolutely. but it's, it's the Absolutely. driver who's making the decisions. Yeah, yeah. The drive. So, so maybe when when they need me, it might be there's a tough left turn up up the road. We know from history, given the design of the intersection and the traffic intensity, that um, my autonomous system is is, is pretty cautious and it is going to hesitate to to make the decision to make the left turn up the road. I need you to look right, look left, look out the window, Larry, and tell me is this a good time for me to make this turn? That's a different kind of driver's training than I need you to drive the car. So you're going to know when I ask you to be the human driver, we're going to know the kinds of things that I need to have you do and look out for. In fact, when I need you to be paying attention. So we're going to enhance your situation awareness around that engagement. I I think that's going to make it very exciting. You know, when you go to get your driver's license, there's two tests that you have to take. I'll quiz you on it. What are the two two things you have to pass to get your driver's license? So a written test on the laws or the rules of the road, and then you have to show that you can operate a vehicle, essentially. No, there's three tests. I'm sorry. There's one more. You um, got to take an eye exam. Eye exam. Ah, yeah. So the regulators have always said, you have to see well enough yeah. to, for me to let you drive on the road. And I just told you, NPS issued a paper. I was a co-author on it that said people can't see well enough, even close to seeing well enough to enable zero deaths. And the Secretary of Transportation said, the goal is zero deaths. So I'm really excited about the potential of these technologies coming together in such a way that we can see much farther up the road in snow, in fog, in rain, and give ourselves much more anticipation. So let's say you just you decide to apply that just on a, um, a super cruise kind of application that GM has, that kind of better vision will reduce the number of disengagements on super cruise. Or it will allow you to adjust speed and change lanes more smoothly because you can see the road better. Um, and very important, it's gonna reduce liability risks because you can see better. So I, I yeah, this it's taken us a while to get to autonomous vehicles, but come on, let's be realistic. It was 2007 when we did the DARPA Urban Challenge. That was in a, air, air, a military base that had been closed. It was like subdivision streets with houses and buildings on it. And there were the race cars, the autonomous race cars and uh, cars that followed them around. There was virtually no traffic. 
And so it's a very, very, very controlled race. And you couldn't even call that a proof of concept, Brandon, even close to it. And, and to think where we are today, what is this, 15 years later, is absolutely remarkable. Talking about 1.3 million people dying a year that don't need to die, shouldn't die. Yeah. And again, we're talking about getting the automobile out of the energy and environmental debate. Right now, we've got this horrible thing happening in, in the Ukraine and, and the global economy is worried about oil prices. Shame on the world to be in that situation. We've known that forever that these risks are out there. So the, the, the prize is so great that I honestly, I'll be candid, I get a little frustrated by the, the writers who lead their story that you know autonomous vehicles are behind. Who, who define, does, does define when they were supposed to be done? Or they're saying it's taking longer than expected. No, think about, please write some stories. I'm not saying you, Brandon. I want the media write some stories about what these cars can do because it's amazing what they can do. Yeah. It really is. And I think this this promise, I mean, as you're talking about the zero deaths, obviously that, that should speak for itself. I mean, the, the, the benefit there, but then also we can, we can also bring it to people's everyday lives as well in that this autonomous vehicle technology is, is such a critical enabler for the improvement of the transportation ecosystem as a whole. Cause I, I think, I mean, you, you've written about once we can get rid of, once we can get rid of the risk of crash or significantly reduce that allows us to get smaller vehicles, less um, you can, yeah, you don't need to have space for six people in my car that I'm driving around when I'm one person, we can start to right size stuff. We can move, Yep. more smoothly through traffic we can be lighter we can be using i mean it's a physics problem right we're, we're all take carrying around way more mass than we need to way aerodynamically more way more mass in in the book there's a simple little calculation i recognize it's simplistic but a typical person weighs 150 pounds and a typical car can be three thousand to four thousand pounds yeah. and when you combust a gallon of gasoline 75 percent of the btus get lost as heat and 25 percent provide torque to the wheels but then when you look at the mass of the driver versus the mass of the car, you realize less than 2% of the energy in a gallon of gasoline is moving the driver. Come on, engineers, we can do better than that. Jeez, oh. And, and, and so I, th I think those are exciting, very exciting opportunities. The other one, I mean, the U.S. just passed this infrastructure bill, big, big spending bill, and every, all the highways are built around the extreme 80,000-pound truck. And if you don't have a driver in a truck, should the load be 80,000 pounds? Part of the reason you have these big loads is the scale of the economy is spreading that 80 cents a mile of the driver across as many pounds or cubic feet as you possibly can. And suddenly, if, if maybe the design limit becomes 40,000 pounds instead of 80,000 pounds, and what does that mean in terms of extending our infrastructure dollars on bridge repair? And then what is the definition of infrastructure in the future? I think it's satellites and servers and data and it's analysts and people who have a much different background than those who typically worry about infrastructure, who are the civil engineers and road builders. They're still important. I don't, I don't want to imply they're not important, but I think the definition of, of transportation infrastructure has changed dramatically with, with, with connectivity, with autonomy, and with electric vehicles and how we raise revenue to pay for that infrastructure changes dramatically. And you mentioned, I mean, I don't know for someone who's not in the field, maybe the idea of a class eight truck being 
automated seems so far out because it's so big. But I mean, we're, we're I can tell you as FEV, we're actively working with multiple companies who are who are working there. There's technology that exists. It's on the road. There's some industrialization work to do to make this safe and and get through all of. And there's also regulations that need to catch up. But like that that uh, that area. And we have a truck driver shortage. Yeah. And and the and for some people, the job is not attractive, and that's contributing to the shortage. The shortage is forecasted to become more severe because a lot of the truck drivers are older and they're reaching retirement age. And um, so, yeah, I think there's real, real reasons to uh, realize this. Uh, in fact, I think the biggest risk around autonomous vehicles is not realizing their full potential as soon as we can. Because every year that goes by where we haven't realized that potential, we're having more we're having more people die on roadways. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a real urgency in my judgment. I'm saying you have to realize this full potential as safely, safely realize this full potential as soon as we can. That 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 really has to be the mission. And I, I want to ask you a bit about a bit more about kind of propulsion system of the future. So we're we're using the term here electric vehicles, which could literally mean battery electric vehicles. It also could mean a battery electric vehicle plus a plug-in hybrid plus an alternative fuel such as a hydrogen fuel cell um, type type application, which these are all electric, electrified vehicles. In your mind, what, what do you see as the future? Is it exclusively battery electric is going to work for everything? Or do you see a mix of these technologies or how do you see that playing out? Yeah. First of all, um, we should want to mix. We should want to have the robustness that comes from um, having our transportation sector depending on both battery electricity and um, fuel cell hydrogen. Um, I think both of those are, are really, really important from a robustness standpoint. What we're going to find with the plug-in electric battery vehicle, um, the, the batteries are not the bottleneck anymore. Um, if you ask me what some of the most amazing progress that's been made technically since I left GMR&D in 2009, the, the, the progress on, on battery technology is awesome. By the way, there was great progress on combustion vehicles too, but you know, that ship has sailed. But the battery technology has just improved dramatically, which is, which is just a testament to scientific capabilities, nanomaterials, a market attracting some of the brightest minds in the world to go on and getting this solved. But to have a, a, a battery electric vehicle transportation system requires more than just the battery. You need to have the electricity and, and I think we're going to solve these challenges on how long does it take to recharge a battery. Great progress there. I think you're going to solve the challenge on where do I recharge? I think you're going to see a lot of excitement on my vehicle being able to recharge your vehicle. And if I, if I can do that, Brandon, and sell you a little bit of electricity because you're a little low and I have more than I need, suddenly you don't need this fixed recharging infrastructure. That's a game changer where you can do vehicle to vehicle recharging. So that, that's exciting. So that's not the issue. The issue is the grid. It's, it's the ability to modernize the electric grid and move the electricity around uh, to, to fulfill the transportation needs on top of all the other needs for electricity. And, and the grid is old, the grid is fragile, and it's capital intensive to improve. And so utilities are going to have to find a way to find that capital and make this grid um, more capable. Um, There's another infrastructure out there called the natural gas pipelines. And lo and behold, with the right 
coating, you can move hydrogen in those natural gas pipelines. And you can take hydrogen and refuel vehicles wherever they might be with mobile refuelers. And you know what? You can make electricity from hydrogen, hydrogen from electricity. You can make both from wind and solar and nuclear. So why not think about a future world where you have both and they're interchangeable and you have two infrastructures delivering them, which gives you robustness. But there will be people who figure out how to use this natural gas pipeline installed base to enable hydrogen. And there's a lot of progress that's been made on the concept of green hydrogen. This is hydrogen produced from uh, renewable sources. So I, I, I think it's an and, it's not an or. I like to call that the power of and. And the beauty for the vehicle is whether you're storing the electrons and batteries or you're storing the hydrogen in, in tanks or in solid state form, the rest of the vehicle is the same. It's electric motors, it's power electronics, it's zero emission, it, it's a driving experience. So that's really good news for the auto industry. You can take these skateboards and you can store hydrogen in the skateboard or you can put batteries in the skateboard and the rest of the car is the same. So I see real robustness there. So I, I would encourage the industry to focus it, on it as an and. Right now, it looks like the, the larger applications, you know, over the road trucks and um, trains yep. and power boats and others might be more amenable to the applications for hydrogen first. Um, but who knows where the, the, the crossing point will be as we go forward. I think the world needs to keep both of them in play. So it sounds like, I mean, we're talking about the, the autonomy space. We're talking about the uh, alternative fuel propulsion system space, both, you know, confident we have technical challenges that either are, have been overcome or will be overcome. It's just a, an application problem to some extent, getting the right, getting the right people working together, getting the infrastructure, getting all these pieces solved is kind of, kind of what I'm, I'm hearing, but I guess I want to, want to get your thought like what, what's the hard part here what what is what is as we look forward what's the biggest risk the biggest hurdle that we have as a society to overcome before we get to yeah. this vision that yeah. we're laying out here yeah well first of all um this is a massive change that we're talking about and if you look at the history of the world um massive change only happens when you have collective will and so i would say the biggest challenge we have is getting the collective will to move on to this future. And collective will, in my judgment, comes from common understanding. Extremely hard in today's world of what's fact and what's fiction and social media world of everybody jumping on things um, and weighing in with opinions, it's hard to get common understanding. So part of the reason I wrote Autonomy was because I wanted these benefits to be realized by the world sooner rather than later. I think they're the right things for the world to go after. And I realized we needed common understanding in order to have a chance to get to the collective will in order to muster the collective resources to make it happen. So I think that's the biggest challenge. Uh, I worry a lot about what big oil is going to do. And we're seeing some of that play out right now. Um, it's hard to... Uh, argue that what's happening in Russia right now, in fact, is being propped up by $113 oil. And Russia happens to have a lot of oil. So if they had a market to sell at 113, he would want to have this going on forever because the oil prices are higher. 
So what what is the response to this future that I've laid out called automobility? What is the the response of um, the world that's been really has huge vested interest in hydrocarbons? What is it really going to be? There's mm-hmm. a lot of lip service being paid to this, but but no kidding, what is it really going to be? And and out of fairness to them, it's a hard transition. If you think the world's going to be electric vehicles and you don't know for sure when, and you've got in the U.S. a, a car park of 250 million vehicles that need gasoline, how do you decide how much capital you put into continuing to produce gasoline versus redirecting your capital to prepare for the electric world? I'm not saying that's an easy business problem for these companies to solve. Yeah. But but there's other people who have a vested interest in the 100-year-old, 120-year-old world of automobiles. And um, there's trial lawyers who make money because cars crash. There's people, a lot of people who make a living by being a driver. And I don't want to disadvantage those people. I'm not trying to, to destroy their world going forward because of, of, of automobility, but I do think there will be other jobs coming out the other end. So I would say the other thing that concerns me is we don't have as clear a definition of what are the new jobs going to be that are going to come in and backfill all the other things that are going to be disrupted. Keep in mind, there's it's not just the driver that's disrupted. If, if, if we're right, we're going to have half as many parts in an autonomous electric vehicle as we have a human-driven combustion vehicle. That's fewer engineers. That's fewer purchasing people. That's fewer logistics contracts. Um, so all of that workload goes down. And um, what about the corner gas station? And what happens to that, that set of jobs? So there's a lot of people who are are, are, are going to be impacted. Again, that's why I wrote the book to try to give them a heads up that this thing's coming. Yeah. It's coming for all the right reasons, but it's going to be disruptive to a lot of folks. It's going to disrupt the real estate industry, the parking industry. It's disrupting, obviously, the dealers, and on and on it goes. Um, so I just worry about it taking longer than necessary because so many people are going to feel this disruption and they're going to push back because they don't have the common understanding as to why this is the right thing for the world to get on with. Yeah. And it may be somewhat awkward transition, but I think there's, there's a thread here. So, so we, Joe, I'd be interested. So, so telematics and data and um, vehicle data, I think somewhat actually play, plays in here. So one of one, one of the promises about making these vehicles, changing the way these vehicles are used, collecting data from the vehicles, and then also making good use of the data is that the, it should theoretically open up a world of opportunities in the business space for different business models, different types of jobs that that we haven't seen before. Can you speak kind of from your perspective, uh, yeah, what, what's being done in this space and what's exciting about this space? Yeah, yeah. And, and full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of Wejo and Wejo uh, went public in November. So I'm a, a, a non-executive board member for Wejo and it, it's a publicly traded company. Um, and it has um, 13 million vehicles on, on its platform today. It's, it's a cloud-based platform where telematics data is fed up into this cloud platform. Every three seconds for these 13 million vehicles, most of them are in the United States, uh, we're able to upload a wealth of information about what's going on with the car, the stuff that you could get out of an OBD2 uh, port, for example. And um, that, that the, the plan is to grow that, that 13 million to on the order of 30 million vehicles on platform within a year. 
and that'll be predominantly US and Europe. Now, there's all kinds of insights that you can get from that. So take, take an example like, okay, what kind of journeys are people making with the electric vehicles that are part of that database? A journey in my mind is I leave home and my journey is everything I do until I get back home. And how many miles are those journeys? Because most people think they're gonna recharge their electric vehicle at home. And what's the statistical distribution? And what are the characteristics of people who happen to be taking journeys that extended, that begin to approach the range of the EV? And how could that feedback be useful to someone who's trying to sell somebody an EV? So that that, that is just, just one very simple example. Um, there's, there's examples with respect to um, the uh, actual crashes. Weijo has enough data with enough vehicles so that they've been able to observe crashes between two vehicles that they were monitoring in their system. So they know what was going on pre-crash, during the crash and after the crash. And that, that's really, really important information to have if you're trying to improve the overall safety yeah. of, of the system. Just from a fleet maintenance standpoint, um, how are cars actually used and how are your delivery trucks actually being used and what does that tell you about the, um, the right preventative maintenance in order to keep these vehicles on the road? And there's all, the, all of the congestion benefits. I think the really big exciting opportunity for these platforms down the road is if you can't pay for roads with gasoline tax because gasoline usage has dropped dramatically, how can you envision a usage-based roadway user fee in order to pay for the roads? And that's going to require you to know where vehicles, which vehicles have been on which roads when. Now you don't need to trace that back to your vehicle identification number or any of that. All of that data privacy is extremely important. Information security is really important. But at the end of the month, someone's gonna to need to say, Brandon went on these types of roads at these times of day and these types of roads were, were charging these fees because these fees take into account the impact he's had on the road, plus the congestion impact from being there at that time. And now we can begin to manage traffic so much better. <laughs> so this is this really is a combination of, of connected vehicle because that's gonna be real important data to anticipate the road ahead that enables autonomous cars. And then it's also historical real-time data. Um, and, uh, I think the sky is the limit about life experiences. At the end of the day, what's really happening here, there's a, I, I like to call this beyond automobility. So I've given a lot of thought to automobility, electric connected autonomous vehicles and how, how they will reshape the world. There is a world beyond automobility and that is the convergence of transportation with information and communications. And we've, we saw with the pandemic things like remote work and things like online learning and, and things like e-commerce on steroids and telehealth happening sooner than some people anticipated out of necessity because of the pandemic. Suddenly um, there's trips I'm not making anymore because I've become a much bigger user of e-commerce than I was before the pandemic. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people like yeah. me out there. And um, what, what really will be the activity patterns of people when all of this converges. What are the reasons for cities? Cities have existed historically because that's where the jobs are, that's where the goods are, that's where the innovation and culture and knowledge existed. And now you don't have to be in a city to do that. 
And are the, all the forces that the demographers are monitoring that are predicting the growth of cities going to get flip-flopped here in some way? So this, this whole future world beyond automobility, then my goodness, you look at what's happening with, with virtual reality. And I don't know if you followed CES at all, but one of the media people, they were in New York doing coverage of CES as if they were on the CES floor because they were a hologram of them <laughs> actually being displayed at CES. And now this company came out and said they've got little small desk size boxes that you and I can be communicating between each other as holograms. I mean, this stuff, it's going to change, Brandon, why we move, when we move, how we move. And that might be the biggest impact on the auto industry of all down the road. I can't tell you when, but it's going to happen because it creates huge value for people and allows them to live their lives and in ways where they have much more freedom. That's why the book's called Autonomy. It's about freedom. Certainly, certainly an exciting time. Certainly, a, a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff going on. I, I guess the last, last, I know I want to be mindful of your time. So, last real question I had for you. So, I'll recommend again my your, your book, Autonomy. But, but outside outside of that, if there was a resource, so someone there's I don't know there's an engineer, an innovator, early career, college, what, what, whatever, who's excited, wants to make an impact in this space. What, where do you send someone like that? What type of advice? What type of what things would you send? Yeah. What, what I say to them, they've got to get a job where they're cutting, working on the cutting edge of knowledge creation. Um, you're, you're already behind if you're getting your insights on this subject by reading my book. Not that I don't want people to read my book, yeah. but I've gone way beyond the ideas in that book. You're, you're behind if you read a, a technical article in a journal about a new breakthrough. Um, the only people who really know how this is going to play out are the ones who are creating knowledge at the cutting edge of knowledge. So get yourself tied in with, with the people who are really creating the autonomous driving systems, or they're really creating the new batteries or the new fuel cells, or they're really creating the new businesses that are delivering the value that comes from all of this. I don't think there's any substitute for really, uh, as an engineer in particular, to be working on the, cut, the cutting edge of knowledge. Um, there's, there's some tendency, I think, for really good engineers to say, well, my career path is to become an engineer, then I'll get an MBA and I'll go work for a, an investment firm on Wall Street. Please spend some time being an engineer. Um, don't rush off, don't rush away from, from that fundamental, the rigor of thinking that you get through your engineering education. Get some real experience about uh, engineers make what's possible real. Do that. And, and, and man, you're going to feel good when you do it. Yeah. There's nothing more rewarding to an engineer. I, honestly, I, I, I really believe this, Brandon. It's not money. It's leaving your fingerprints behind as an engineer, being an innovator, having done something that you can point to to your kids and say, because I was involved, that's happening in a different way. How many people get to really do that in life? And so that's what I would encourage a young, a young engineer to do. By the way, I wish I was 25 again, knowing what I know. I, I think the next 10 years are just going to be awesome. Um, in, in terms of, of change. There's a really good book. It's called They Made America. It's written guy by, by a guy named Harold Evans. And he talks about the great innovations that shaped how I grew up. So this was 1880 to 
1920 type innovations, the airplane, the car, the radio, the television, new materials and stuff, oil, all of that stuff. And that really defined how I lived. I was born in 1951. So 1951 to today, it defined how I lived. Now, someone's going to write this book. Um, they remade America, and it's going to be about 1980 to 2020. And those innovations that defined how people live their lives from 2020 on, and it, it's going to be dramatically different than that last century. And I think for a young person to be able to be part of the delivery of that is, is, is very, very exciting. And it, it will be rewarding financially, but I think most important, it's going to be rewarding just in terms of the, the sense of purpose that you have in contributing to that. Yeah, I, I think that makes makes a ton of sense. I probably probably a good place to lead this. I, I really appreciate. It. I think we covered covered some great ground here. Really appreciate you sharing uh, sharing your your expertise and experience here in, in some areas. Uh, it's a super exciting field, like like we talked about here, and uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully inspire some people. I mean, certainly, certainly I'm inspired to, inspired to uh, continue to to work in this field and try to make an impact. Great, thanks thanks for having me, Brandon. I enjoyed it. Yep, Th- thanks, Larry. Well, there you have it. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Larry Burns. So like I mentioned at the, the intro, really, really an honor for, for my side to have uh, Larry, Larry on the podcast, who's truly a pioneer in this this industry and uh, is a super interesting guy to talk to. I, I mentioned this at the beginning, so his book Autonomy was what ultimately led, led me to reach out to, to Larry. And I, I want to highlight kind of two things that came out, came through in that book and then also i think comes through in this this conversation as well so, so the first is the the storytelling so the, the the book is just captivating leading reading the beginning about these grand challenges at the beginning and then the urban challenge thinking about you know what went into these teams who got this this um, solicitation from darpa saying hey drive across this desert you get a million bucks if you finish no one knows if it can be done how it can be, what needs to be done where the hard parts are, what technology needs to be used, what, uh, yeah, we had robotics basics, but not, no one had really ch- ch- taken on this challenge before. So reading, you know, what goes into that and how those teams worked and fought and came together and just really hit, hit me in the, the at the core as kind of a, an engineer at heart thinking of how exciting that must have been, how, how yeah, how cool it must have been to part, be part of that challenge. And then now fast forwarding today, how cool it is to be part of this industry who's now building on that and trying to realize the benefits of autonomous technology for um, yeah, safer, more sustainable, more effective, more accessible mobility. So that that was the first thing that really stood out to me. The second thing is just the, and we, we talked about this, but the level of optimism that comes through. So yeah, there's certainly challenges, right? There's about a change of the size always is going to have challenges and we're not there yet it's taking longer by some people who yeah Larry takes exception with some of the people who uh defined kind of the timeline from being outside the industry but whatever this 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 technology is taking longer than the public might have thought it was going to take and there's there's still challenges ahead of that but with even with all that it comes through super clear in my mind how optimistic how exciting Larry is about what what we have the potential to do here collectively as an industry and as a society and, how, and the impact that we can have in all of these different ways of t- removing deaths making things more sustainable eliminating dependence on on oil from from different places 
um, improving the way the accessibility of getting around the way we're getting around the efficiency of getting around all of these things are within within our reach and I think that really refreshing to hear that level of yeah realism I think we talked about the challenges but also optimism coming through so clearly so yeah well, hopefully you enjoyed I certainly one of the, my favorite conversations I've had um, and yeah but until next week thanks for listening well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed the second most popular episode of 2022 featuring Larry Byrne. So awesome, awesome thoughts from my perspective about, you know, what assisted and automating driving can look like, what two-mode driving can look like, the, the true meaning of automobility and how we can transform and what that could actually mean providing value to society, to the individuals who are utilizing the system. I've talked about electrification, but lots, lots of, uh, lots of great topics here hope you enjoyed it i think great great reason why this was one of the most popular of the year it's one of my favorite episodes for sure so thanks for listening stay tuned sometime next week before christmas i'll be rolling out um the most popular episode of the year and uh yeah look forward to that so thanks again and uh more to come thank you for listening to the future of mobility podcast brought to you by edison manufacturing and engineering if you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of tens to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.